Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Healthcare Podcast, where we bring you the topics, insights, thought leaders, and discussions that may just change the way you think about healthcare. On today's episode, we are going to talk about, is there a doctor in the house? The looming epidemic that's already here. As it stands, 42% of physicians report being burned out. 80% of those noted burnout began pre-pandemic, not to mention a projected physician shortage of up to 124,000 physicians by 2034. Nursing in hospitals is also seeing the highest turnover rates in years, 19%. And some figures put nursing burnout as high as 70%. What's going on? I mean, what can be done about it? And why does it matter? To talk about this and much more, we have Dr. Hugh Bui joining us today. Dr. Bui has been in the healthcare industry for close to 15 years. He's also an entrepreneur, investor, and a human capital metrics and analytics consultant. As a certified fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives, he also maintains his duties as an active board member for the Western Florida chapter of the American College of Healthcare Executives. His responsibilities include working and spearheading healthcare executive speaker educational events for his chapter. He has been a keynote speaker at other engagements in the past, which include Innovator MD World Congress, Physician Leadership for Residency Program, and Ending Physician Burnout Global Summit. His article on strategic human capital management has been tentatively approved for national publication with the HFMA, a CFO and CEO healthcare magazine later this year. Dr. Bowie's interests are at the intersection of finance, human capital management, and data analytics. As chief medical officer of Two Days Mood, an employee sentiment and analytics software company, he leverages employee data to provide insights into an organization's employee's mood and how it correlates to an organization's KPIs. He believes that employees' knowledge, skills, and abilities are an organization's greatest asset, and therefore, to maximize the performance of an organization's financial standing, it must practice a sustainable employability model with its employees. Lastly, he is also a strategic healthcare human capital consultant partner with HC Moneyball, human capital analytics consulting firm. So welcome to the show, doctor, and thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm excited to be here today. It's really, uh, it's a topic that's on my mind in regards to how we manage the workforce, which is more important than ever today with the current situation we have going on with, you know, high staff turnover and burnout. So uh, I'm excited to be here to talk about the topic and how to, uh, maybe have a different framework of how we manage our employees. Uh, so thank you for your time and, and I'm glad to be here today. Yeah, no, thanks again. I'm excited to dive in. So I think to start, um, you know, I've obviously read some of your stuff. We've, we've talked before and interacted on the LinkedIn's mostly. Um, and you're definitely doing some incredible and important work. Can you kind of share in your own words a little bit more about how you became so interested in the area of strategic human capital management, and maybe even explain just a little bit like what does human capital management mean? Sure. Um, well, in the last couple of years, actually, um, I was working initially with several uh, data analytics software companies um, as an advisor behind the scenes to kind of help them vertically integrate their product lines into healthcare 
And during the past couple of years, I've actually also connected with several international and um, U.S. Uh, domain experts in human capital because they saw my work in, in data analytics. And so they got interested. We exchanged uh, information. And then finally, within the past year or so, we, we started really connecting together and having conversation, deep conversations about the current healthcare system because they were really interested in um, applying the human capital uh, work that they do into healthcare. So myself being in healthcare already and having a work, working knowledge of data analytics, I thought it was a perfect uh, kind of like merit in a way. And so we started having conversation with a lot of synergy between our conversations. And we were both, you know, some of the folks that I've connected with, we're very passionate about how we were gonna change the future of work. And healthcare being such an important part of our economy, uh, it's the number one employer today, and yeah. it's going to continue to stay that way. So it, it's definitely going to be at the forefront uh, of issues that we're going to be dealing with. Um, so within the past year or so, we started working together, publishing material, and actually working and, and creating um, systems of how we were going to uh, approach healthcare systems to say, hey, um, you know, we, we would like to uh, have the ability to kind of like provide that human capital framework and working uh, management systems of how you guys manage your, your human capital. Um, so there was a lot of talks within the past year and I started doing a lot more work with them. And we started talking about also the healthcare system overall. Uh, healthcare system is, is a, was not manufactured, not my, we're not making widgets. So it's a predominant service industry. Mm. And so the, the service product that we uh, make is relying on labor and by people. It's not by machines. We have com completely automated everything. So every service product you make in healthcare is all tied back to people. So it's an intangible asset that actually gets consumed right away and, and it's, the product is gone. It's not stored. So uh, it's very important the quality of the work that you do or the product that, that patients get are relying on humans. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big, humans are a big component of the healthcare system and the employees. And so when we often talk about um, leaders of organization, whether it be healthcare or any other industries, you, you ask them, what is your greatest assets? So the answer that often is given by leaders or organizations it's not artificial intelligence. It's not technology. All that stuff that we talk about today. Yeah. The words that will come out of leaders' organizations are people are our greatest assets. Mm -hmm. Whether that's lip service or that's actually, they actually mean that. That's a right. different story. But we can explore to see why that is the answer that is often given by leaders of organizations, right? So people are our greatest assets. So why, why is that? So when we look at the history of like market value of organizations, the S&P 500 market value organizations. In the 1970s, about 75% of the market value of organizations were due to tangible assets. Tangible assets were defined as physical things, right? Building mm -hmm. equipment, technology at that time. So that market value back in the 1970s or 45 years ago were due to tangible assets. And so today in today's economy, we're predominantly service related. We have a complete paradigm shift, right? So we have now 90% of 
of the S&P 500 market value organizations can be attributed to intangible assets, not tangible anymore, intangible assets. And part of that intangible assets is goodwill. And part of that goodwill component is the workforce. So now we talk about why that is the answer. People are our greatest assets. Well, people, knowledge, skills, and ability are an organization's greatest asset. Because when we talk about the products you produce will be obsolete tomorrow, right? You need to continue to innovate and make new products. And that's only gonna happen if the workforce is equipped with knowledge, skills, and ability to come up with new ideas, to innovate, make new products. So that's your competitive advantage is your, your employees to have the proper skills, knowledge, and ability to compete with, with other organizations. So that's why people uh, are the true value source creation of organizations today. And so, and we can tie that. It's not some like touchy-feely stuff. We're trying to tell people, oh, people are our greatest assets and, and can't right. prove it. We can provide the proof through the metrics and the numbers and tie the human capital numbers and measurements that a lot of these uh, uh, folks that I work with, we can tie that to your financial statements and provide proof that if you invest in your people, that can show you show up in the financial performance of your organizations. So that's not as some touchy-feely stuff. We yeah. tie the science behind this to say, study and, uh, your people metrics and your numbers, and you can show that you will improve your financial performance. Just like anything we do, right? right. You cannot manage what you don't uh, measure. Mm -hmm. So the same way that hospitals measures quality, right? They measure what other things, that uh, average length of stay, mm -hmm. uh, how much money they collect. They measure everything because it's important to them. But they have to realize that something, your collections, your average length of stay, uh, your quality metrics, everything ties back to people because mm -hmm. people are behind the scenes operating this. So yeah. people KPIs will affect all the other dashboard KPIs in your hospitals. So why aren't you measuring people metrics? Because mm -hmm. that's the center of everything. You were drawing a diagram, everything leads back to people. Yeah. So that's yeah. why, you know, it, it, it's amazed me that, you know, as much as we talk about people as our greatest assets, we do very little measurements of something that is so important. So sometimes people say, well, people measurements are really hard to measure, mm -hmm. you know, but I always tell people, you know, if you look at back in the days and the times when early times, we had a hard time measuring simple things like time also. Right. We had no many different ways. We measured the sun, the shadows. We did everything we possibly could, mm -hmm. sand going through a jar, whatever we did to measure time. It's the same thing with people. We will measure people metrics. And if there's improvement along the way, we will redefine the measurements and find better ways to measure it until we perfect it. But you cannot manage what you don't measure. And that comes down to people. Yeah. It, 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 every organization talks a good game, but only 20% of organizations today have a strategic management with their human capital. Mm. Only 20%, which is shocking, right? So right. organizations that outperform their competitors in every financial performance metric have a very strategic talent management program. Mm. And they study every aspect of their employees. The entire employee life cycle is studied from the time they get recruited to the time they exit their organization. All these are transactional data points that can be measured and tied to a cost or a revenue. 
Yeah. So a lot of organizations don't do that. So, uh, you know, we, we're at a disconnect in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm hoping to shed the light into that. Hey, once you measure these things, you're going to you're going to have great insights in your organization. What's working, what's not working and how you can improve just like quality, uh, average length of say everything we do in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. Once we do these things and embed it into our everyday business operations and process, then you can make a difference just because you, you put in a level of importance to it, mm-hmm. it and it, it will, you can improve on it. Yeah. But the bottom line is when you don't, when you, when you don't put it in the top priority into your everyday business operation, mm-hmm. it's really hard to improve. Yeah. Well, that's, um, that's pretty fascinating stuff. Definitely. I think, and like I said before, certainly important. It made me, I had, it made me think of tons of questions and it sounds like, um, not to oversimplify it, but we, we do think of like human capital or like HR is like this, like, are you happy at work? It's like, you know, yeah. You know, measuring engagement, like, what does that really mean? It sounds like you're, you've been able to, or working on getting a handle on what that actually means, the data behind it that you can then connect with revenue. So then you can say to anyone in the organization, here's the ROI on people, you know, right. that, that we always thought was this kind of amorphous thing is, is now something that you're working on making it really tangible and actionable, which is probably the most right. important part. That, that's the important part is that human resource is, is great, but if you measure engagement and other uh, feel good initiatives within HR, mm-hmm. like engagement, then you have to tie it to a, a, a measurement that is tied to finance because that's the language of CEO and CFOs, right? Sure, so yeah. you tie your engagement goes up this much, that should also translate to an increase in your productivity this much because people are engaged, they're gonna be more productive, yeah, right? Yeah. So you have to measure the correlation of increased engagement, increased productivity, and how does that translate to your EBITDA on your financial statements? Mm-hmm. So everything ties together. But you really need to kind of like merge that HR function of engagement and other uh, initiatives in HR into uh, metrics and then finance. Once you make that connection of HR and finance together, um, that is strategic management of an HR. But right now, a lot of HR functions are still what I call compliance level, which means they're just measuring engagement, but nothing else tied to finance or numbers. And so you kind of get these kind of like... a disconnection because that's not the language of the C-suites level. They need to know numbers. They need to know finance. So, and so that's where I'm hoping to kind of like merge that connection of HR and human capital together so that we can see all these correlation and tie numbers and finance. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's really great. I had a, had a guest on before and he doesn't, he doesn't do the same thing, but he's more on, you know, like engagement. He's sort of, he's like, if there were a chief kind of people officer, of an organization, that would be kind of a role he would fill. But but he is also very focused on on metrics and not just doing the sort of like touchy feely. Which, but it was good. So it's a, it's a topic that I really am interested in and enjoy. Let me ask you. You mentioned before, you know, healthcare. It's not like healthcare is not. There's no product behind it. Like it's a service industry. But mm-hmm. it's it's interesting you say that because when I think about it, and I don't know how many people think about it this way, but. I, I don't necessarily think of it as a service industry. Is that something you you find uh, common amongst people? Like the patients normally not think of it as a service industry and then physicians 
do think of it as a service industry. Is there a disconnect there? Or is that just me being kind of kind of strange? For no, whatever reason, it, it almost I, exists I think, outside I, of service or goods or any. It's it's it feels so different. Right. I, I think more like my definition is kind of like more is something we provide uh, a a. Um, it's not a physical product, you know. Sure. So when I when I say services, means like you go buy or or um, it, it it's not a it's not a physical product. Mm -hmm. you, you get some, like I said, service provided to you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not a product that you just kind of take home. It's not a physical product that you put in store, like you know, like Amazon. There's a physical product you put it on yeah. the shelf. When you buy it, there's an expiration date. That's what mm -hmm. I mean by my service. This is not a, something that's tangible. Okay. So what, that's my definition of what like a service would be is that sure. you, it's, a, it's a product, but it's not something that's physical. Yeah, no, yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, what, do you think that it is lip service a lot of the times that when you talk to companies or if you talk to a healthcare CEO or any big company CEO, they're like, oh, our people, like they're the ones that matter. I mean, I think they, I think overall they do believe in that. I think it's just that the functions mm -hmm. of that people often uh, falls back into the human resource. Okay. And so what happened is human resource, uh, there is a disconnect between HR mm -hmm. and CFO and CEO levels. HR is still not at the level where I call strategic management. Mm -hmm. where they can tie numbers and finance together. And there are thought leaders out there in HR that are starting to push, make a push to make sure that HR is going to have a seat at the table by having these skill sets of like data management and then finance. And so they're, they can play a very important role moving forward in the future, but they have to... Um, change the way they, they, they think about things and like, not like a, you know, just like a compliance level check in the box activity, but they need to kind of like say our decisions in HR translate to this much in money and mm -hmm. how it affects your organization's mission and goals all together, like mm -hmm. with talent management. So once they can tie the numbers and finance together, um, they're going to be uh, an important component so a lot of the CEOs, if they, when there was a recent survey that CEOs felt that the HR was not strategic yet. Like they didn't know how to do these things that they wanted them to do. And HR, on the other hand, the survey says they don't have the skill sets to do these yeah. things that the each, uh, CEOs want. Mm -hmm. So there is a level of disconnect between HR function and CEO. So um, I, do, I do believe they, they mean that people are their greatest asset and they believe that. Mm -hmm. It's just that they don't know how to get there. And, and so, because like I said, that function falls in HR lots of times, right. these initiatives, Hey, find out the engagement for this, find out, mm -hmm. you know, what's going on with employees. So it falls to HR and HR is not at that level where they can convert their functions into numbers and mm -hmm. finance. So um, I, I think once we get there, um, we're, we're going to see a really di big difference of how we manage our folks. So, yeah. So have you, do you have any um, examples maybe of, of hospitals or organizations that you've worked with and you were, you know, either the things you've, if you're at liberty to share specifics, you know, or, or generalities of, you know, going in, working with um, HR departments, you know, C-level executives to, to kind of put something in place just so maybe like to understand like 
from by way of example of kind of how this looks when it actually gets kind of implemented? Um, healthcare organizations, I haven't really seen a lot of, um, of that aspect of tying human capital. Mm -hmm. um, what I've seen a lot more is like the work is usually done when there's high turnover. Yeah. But um, in regards to kind of like before, you know, things get to a situation where you have to address like high turnover, uh, other organizations I see more of actually using the service that with the consultant firm I'm with mm -hmm. is they, they measure what is called human capital intensity and how much you measure like investing your people. And this is a case study through Bank of America, the data we share uh, is that by having a level of human capital and investment intensity, you can tie that into like turnover, absentee, mm -hmm. And then how much of your that's reflected in the revenue generation or, or the EBITDA on the financial statements. I've seen that more in organizations outside of healthcare, but I don't I haven't really seen too much of using that component of human capital management in healthcare. So that's where I come in is I'm trying to spread the message to say, hey, there's a way to measure your people better so that you can have great insights to how to improve. So outside of healthcare, I've seen great work that's being done. Yeah. Because they really, when you look at like healthcare, it's very interesting is that, you know, I think a lot of times, at, at times, I think we, we kind of take for granted people going to healthcare, lots of people, it's, they say it's a calling to go into healthcare. Right. Yeah. And so when you look at other organizations outside of healthcare, their employees are not at the level of healthcare. It's not like I go to work at Google or Facebook because it's right. my calling to go there. Like right? calling to be a product manager at Google. Felt like right. I was three. It's not a calling for people. Yeah. So it's a bit different level, you know? So I think yep. at times, I think, you know, healthcare just kind of takes for granted that it's a calling. So they don't have to really invest in their people. Now, Google and Facebook have to, you know, really do a good job of engaging their people to kind of be really into their work. They had to have developed that personalized purpose in what they do in these other organizations. Healthcare, they have that already. You just need mm -hmm. to kind of nurture it, develop, and can further maximize that, that, that personalized purpose in what you do. You can't just leave it to chance and let it just plan out to be. But if right. you're beaten in the system over time, I don't care how well it is, that personalized purpose, that flame will go out. And sure. so that's what happened. And we're seeing today more and more turnover and burnout and all that stuff we're going to get into in a little bit. Yeah. Is that, that personalized purpose in the meaning of what you do is it's kind of like the flame is going out. So um yeah, it's very problematic. But a lot of things I see that's done in a human capital uh is actually done outside of healthcare. Yeah. Uh, and really healthcare is kind of behind the times a little bit in a sense and uh, how they manage their workforce. Yeah, I mean, seen a lot of ways that healthcare is behind. And it's always, I think the, the best way I heard anybody uh, talk about it was that it's like Star Wars technology in the Flintstones delivery system, you know, with like the feed pedaling. Cause it's like, we have like the coolest stuff, you know, that does it like robotic surgery. I mean, it's, that's always the one I go to, but, and then, you know, faxes. Like you have to fax your records over. I'm like, I don't have a fax machine. What do you mean faxes? Like that doesn't, it's bananas. So, so it sounds like, and I was going to ask this, but I think you kind of answered it. I mean, do you think that that sort of taking for granted, like, I mean, you're, you're a doctor, so, you know, it's probably easy to assume that you felt 
similarly a certain calling to be a doctor. Right. And then, and then the organization, you know, not saying this happened to you, but other, other doctors, nurses also that we, we do, we take for granted that they, that this is all they've ever wanted to do. And through the evolution of the healthcare system, all this extra stuff, directives and compliance things just gets dumped on these people. And we forget that they're also just people trying, you know, trying to find joy in their job. And once a purpose gets buried under everything else, it leads to the burnout. Right. And so I don't think if you ask any doctor, if based on the, the, the questions that, that they have for burnout, that any doctor would say, no, I never had experienced this. Everyone has. Yeah. So it's just the level of like, when you look at like chronic burnout, you look at it from a standpoint of like, yeah, it's a problem. It's recognized by the World Health Organizations to be a problem. Mm-hmm. It's recognized. It's on the ICD. It has its own classification. Okay, so it's a really? it's a big problem. Yeah, but every doctor has some type of level of stress. Sure. It's just whether the chronic stress is under control or not. Mm-hmm. Once the chronic stress is not under control anymore, and then you have other criteria of of feeling loss of control in what you do, diminished productivity. And just negative perceptions of the work that you do and the meaning and the purpose of that, the value you bring, that's when, you know, chronic bur- burnout uh, becomes a problem uh, is when you start to have all those feelings. But when you do a deeper dive into like what, what is going on with chronic burnout, it really, when you like take a look at the situation, I always tell people it, it's, uh, it's really Chronic burnout, if you research this and you Google search physician burnout, you can see back in the 90s, there were already articles written on chronic burnout. Mm-hmm. It just gotten worse or it not, it just gotten worse over time. And over time, it stays about the same or gotten worse a little bit, but it's always been there. Yeah. It's never been a, a problem until now, I think, just because I think we might want, one might have reached a threshold where it's starting to get to people where they have to really think about if they want to be in the profession or not anymore. Changing demographics too, I think that plays a role. I think, you know, maybe baby boomers, physicians and Gen X, that's myself. Uh, you know, we, we just kind of stick with it and we just uh, just plug along. Uh, millennial uh, and Gen Z physicians coming in, they're going to have a different value system. And they're, they I think unlikely they're going to be going to be putting up with this chronic burnout situation to have to find purpose in what they do. They're a very interesting generation. If you research millennials, uh, you will understand why this framework that we are in the healthcare system today will not fit with their value system. And they're going to likely leave organizations a lot more. Millennials don't define being a doctor is the only thing they do. They have other things to do besides being a doctor. Maybe the other generation doctors might identify themselves as just being a doctor. Millennials are very interesting. They define their, they could be artists outside of healthcare. They could be a musician. They, they could be a, a program. They, they have a lot of interesting yeah. things that they do outside of healthcare. So that's why studying generation differences also will be very important to understand why chronic burnout is not going to gonna go well with the new generation of workforce we have and then just looking at the grand scheme of things is that when you look at the reimbursement 
the financial construct of how we 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 get them reimbursed in healthcare, how we get paid, it's volume based. It's still volume based. Yeah, I know how you want to spin it, but revenue equals price times volume. So if you drop down the price, people want to keep seeing the revenue. They're going to have to increase their volume, mm -hmm. right? So that's the healthcare system itself. And then you look at the financial. Um, how you're getting compensated as a doctor, about 90%, most compensation models for doctors are 90% are, are attributed to volume. You get paid on the units of service you provide. And maybe on average, 10% of the compensation is based on quality metrics or outcome. So then you see how that is designed. Then you see how that comes into conflict with the things that are causing people to be burnout. Time pressures causes burnout because why? We're volume driven. Less time you see patients, patients are unhappy. You try to pump in more volume. The units of production matters because that's how you get compensated. Electronic healthcare record system also comes in conflict with volume base because when you're doing all this charting, guess what? It's non-value activity. It's non-RVU related. You don't get paid to document and chart everything under the sun. You don't get paid for that. Yeah. So your conflict in the conflict of how you get paid because you're not getting you're, you're not getting paid for charting. Mm -hmm. So then you, you look at very little input and control of the work environment that's very chaotic. And then you have a recipe for more problems. All right. So and then uh, besides the financial designs of that are not very conducive to to this mental well-being is the hierarchical toxic work environments we have lots of times in our healthcare organizations. It's hierarchical, it's fear-based because that's always the institution It's very old and that's how it's always been done. It's very militaristic. And so it's kind of like top-down marking orders, do do this, you know, there's no answering back and this is how it is, right? So that comes into conflict with the newer generations. That's now we talk to people nowadays, right? So healthcare systems over, it's coming in, into a little mixing with, with the new generation that's not going to do well either. So we talked lots of times, you see so many things today about psychological safety and trust of organizations. Well, when you have low trust and low psychological safety in healthcare organizations, you really can't speak up about issues. What if you have burnout and you say, I have burnout, I have anxiety, I have depression because of it. Well, what will happen to your license? A lot of doctors are not going to come forth and report this and put jeopardize their career because that can be used against them, right? Yeah. You can't have psychological safety and trust, low trust, and people to come forward and say, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I need to be on medication because of the work I do. Mm -hmm. Maybe you lose your license. Okay. There's no medical bylaws that actually protects you from this. Never There's no legislation that. that protects you from this. I know yeah. plenty of physicians say, hey, I'm burnt out, but I'm not ever going to tell anybody about it because I don't want to lose their license. Yeah. Right. Would you be at jeopardy or, or have more medical lawsuits because you expose yourself and say, I have burnout. Mm -hmm. Somebody can look at your records retrospectively and look in, and start to scrutinize everything. You see? Yeah. It's low trust, not a lot of psychological safety in place. Well, people come forward and expose their their chronic burnout situation. So, you know, nurses are are, are in the same situation. Yeah, there's not really that much different.
they're still dealing with lots more patients to take care of than they can mm-hmm. humanly possible. More likely, there's you see more of it because there's just a sheer volume. You have one by a little bit over a million doctors. You got five or six million nurses. So if 40% of them are burnt out and then 40%, the numbers just by sheer numbers, this is a lot. But I think nurses also, they're more at the forefront dealing with patients. Yeah. And then on top of that, I think they're doing more repetitive work too. So you, yeah. you have all that together, mm. you know, nurses at the forefront more than doctors. They're doing a lot more repetitive work than doctors even. Mm. And so you start to see all that volume-based situations where everything has to be kind of cookie cutter because we want to speed through things because yeah. that's about units of production. You see, it's like a grind. It's like the factory of healthcare. Yeah. And how do you think that, I mean, that is, that's a lot, that's a lot to deal with. Uh, absolutely. And how do you think that's affecting patients? You know, I got to assume we talk about them separately, but I mean, you have all these doctors that are struggling, nurses that are struggling. I mean, what's the impact on us? Yeah. Well, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's a patient. Yeah. Okay. So when we, I I think it's going to take a lot more, I think for patients to be advocates for doctors Mm. to say, to be outraged. Now, if we said to you, 42% of doctors are burnout in the context of things, what is that supposed to mean? What if I said 39% of doctors are burnout? What is that supposed to mean? Yeah. It doesn't mean anything to maybe people at administrative level because they, you can't tie, when you can turn, convert percentages of burnout into a dollar amount and how it affects the financial statements, then mm-hmm. we might be talking something different. Yeah. That's one way. Mm-hmm. The other part is that patience. If I change the narrative and or, or replace the word 42% of doctors are burnout. And I say to you, 42% of pilots are burnout when they're flying planes. I mean, the UBL rate is like, there needs to be legislation that fixed this right away because there's no way I'm flying a plane. In other high-risk industries, it's no different from healthcare because our work affects patients, right? Mm-hmm. So if I say to yourself, 42% of pilots that fly planes are burnout, they'll be in outroar outrage he's like no way well there's yeah. no way i'm flying this plane with a guy is burnout and and i want my safety so mm-hmm. why is it any different when it comes to doctors why are we having the same outrage here yeah no i i totally agree i mean i thought about it too and uh, you know obviously not experienced it i'm not a doctor um I probably couldn't hack it but um you know working incredible shifts. I mean, in medical school, out of medical school, residency, just as you know, you hear about it, you know, 24, 36 hours in the hospital, exhausted, haven't slept. And then it's like, you know, then they come into your room and they're, you know, sleep deprived and whatever else happens. I mean, I got to imagine, right? Like, like you said, pilots can't fly for a certain period, like past a certain period of time, because then their judgment, like all of us becomes impaired. So Right. I mean, it definitely affects patients overall because one, like I said, you're not getting the best version of somebody. Sure. Right. So when you're not getting the best version of somebody, it's like, would you rather go into a hospital? If you knew a financial, uh, a performance metrics and it was reported in hospitals, uh, one hospital has, you know, 10% burnout of their workforce and another one has 40%. I think I want to go to the one that's 10%. Right. <laughs> because I feel like I'm going to get better service. Yeah. And so that's where the empowerment of patients will come into play and say, hey, if your workforce is burnout, mm-hmm. we got to do better. Because ultimately, 
you know, medical errors can happen with burnout patients, you know, uh, doctors, right? So mm. the tie to, you know, uh, could be, you know, medical errors are, are more prone to happen. It's just a human nature. When you're burnt out, you're stressed, you're not thinking, you're not bringing your best version of work and right. you have other occupations with other things going on in your life. Hey, we're all humans, right? So that's going to affect. So I, I think if patients become more aware and become better advocates for doctors and nurses yeah. and say they're not willing to tolerate this and we need legislation mm-hmm. to provide a safety zone for doctors to seek treatment and not fear of losing their license. Yeah. I think we're going to have a different ball game here, you know, and, and then, you know, I, I think, you know, organizations have to take it seriously because once we tie the burnout into the quality of care, mm-hmm. financial performance of organizations and, and access to care, because if more doctors are burnout, guess what? Burnout's on the spectrum before you have turnover. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. not on a spectrum. You get burnout, maybe you don't work as much anymore, you're not as productive. And then at the end point of the burnout is bye-bye, I'm quitting, right. I'm done. Yeah. I'm going to another profession. I'm, I have checked out. I'm done. So that's the spectrum of going to the extreme is like once burnout happens, you either work less, you cut your shifts back, you work part-time. So now there's less of the workforce that's available, mm-hmm. or you take more time off. That's less for workforce that's available as a su- supply part, or they quit altogether. Yeah. And then you have a supply problem again because they quit. And the, the, the time frame, the lag that I write sometimes on, on, on social media is that the time lag for skilled positions like nurses and doctors are not, you're not going to pluck somebody off the street to come in and say, be a nurse for today, be a doc for today. Yeah. You can't, we, we need replacement. You right. can't have replacement with skilled positions. Right. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So I think this crisis that we're going to have right now mm-hmm. is that if the supply starts to diminish to the point where you cannot have that meet that demand, the growing demand of the aging workforce and with all the pandemic situation going on right now. If that supply is so far from the supply side, we might have to call a reinforcement from the outside. Like what we used to have nurses coming from other countries coming in here, the staff. And that right now there's a growing problem is that you see that with the nurses is that a lot of them are say, I'm quitting, right? Because uh, a, a staff temp nurse makes two to three times what they make. Yeah. They come in, a I, nurse that actually working there has to teach and train the temp nurse and they make two to three times they do. And it's like, you know what? Why am I doing this job here? I'm I just going to travel it. Here. Yeah. And I'm going to go be a temp nurse. Right. I was going to ask you about that, actually, because I've been seeing a lot on the socials. All these nurses are like, they're making so much more than me. Like, why am I here? I'm going to hit the road or just but quit and say I'm a happened. traveling nurse. And like, it's, it seems like it's crushing the loyalty. of. Oh, the, there's of no, the- there's no loyalty because there was no loyalty in the first place with employees, yeah. with employees, right? You're everybody, you know, you hear the phrase all the time. Everybody's expendable. You can be replaced. Yeah. But that that is that's a there's a big mistake with that. Mm-hmm. Because when you you just don't replace somebody knowledge and skills and ability easily, yeah. right? There's there's a cost to that. Mm-hmm. And besides the replacement cost of recruit, we calculate recruitment costs. We cost you know 
the, the, the other component that actually costs a lot is what we call ramp up time. Yeah. Okay. Somebody comes in an organization, it could be months before they're fully proficient compare and without any supervision from another nurse to, to be productivity wise in the same level as another nurse. So yeah. there's a ramp up time that's problematic. It's just not like you're just going to call on a nurse and they're going to be like, okay, I know everything here. Right. I know where the syringes are. I know where all the medical supplies are. You don't, you just can't replace that knowledge. Yeah. You just that's, that's very, it's, it's very dangerous for organizations to think they can just can replace somebody sure. in a skill level position. So um, it's, it's very problematic. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it for sure. And, you know, again, high stakes in a hospital, in the healthcare industry, but even in other organizations where the stakes aren't there. But yeah, you, the, the powers that be, whoever at the top, they're like, we're going to fire these four people and they just fire them. And then they bring in people from the outside and they have no idea what's going on. And everybody underneath is like, why did you just let them go? There's no turnover. There's no handoff even. You just are like, oh, out the door. We're going to bring in some younger people who are less expensive or whatever the case may be. And it just, it's always been something that I'm like, that's crazy. One of, one of the things actually through research and other uh, areas that I've worked with other consultants in mm-hmm. the employee turnover situations, we looked at is that uh, besides all the things we talked about, chronic burnout, the situation, but the other part that we talked about previously was about the toxic work situation. And, and the, the toxic situation is one of the biggest problems at the top level positions, like first line managers, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be a toxic case worse uh, nurse manager or a department chief. Those people are one of the most common reasons why people leave organizations. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it was like, there was a figure like 66% or something, like two thirds of people leave their jobs, not because of pay, benefits, work schedule, everything. It's because of the bad relationship they have with their first line manager and their boss. Mm-hmm. So to fix that problem, turnover problem starts right away. Is at the very top, you need to look and review all your uh, first line managers and remove the ones that are not effective or can't do their job, you know, in a way to create that, you know, foster that work environment where they, you have collaborative mm-hmm. process with their employees and there's trust, all that. They are the, the biggest risk for employees to turn over is that first line manager. Mm-hmm. If you can fix that problem, you can stop some of this bleeding right now. If you ask nurse, a uh, lot of nurses, if they like their job and they like their case manager, Mm-hmm. They would stay on board for a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, these people go through the rigors of healthcare because of the column, they have grit. They can deal with a lot of stuff. Yeah, It's not all of a sudden one day they decide, ah, I, I can't hack this, I'm out. Right. I can't do it. That relationship, like I said, if you like your boss, you mm-hmm. tend to like your pay better, you like your work schedule better, and everything seems to be better. Even you like right. your, some of your colleagues better. When you don't like that case manager, everything becomes a problem. Yeah. You know, like work schedule, you start call out more, fix that first line manager problem, that, nas- uh, that nurse case manager or department chiefs of hospitals, you fix that problem. You can see the turnout, the turnover start to improve. Yeah. That's the, I was going to ask you that, I, you know, cause this is such a bit, when I, I mentioned my friend that I talked to before about the similar thing and I asked him, I was like, this seems like such a bear. And, and I mean, in, 
in a hospital, for example, I mean, mo you know, it, like you said, it's all about the people. It's a service. I mean, most of the costs in the hospital is going towards to people, to salaries and wages. Right. And it seems like such a monster to say, what, do, where do we even start? So I was going to ask you that. And that's a great, it sounds like a great place to start. I know that certainly any moves that I've made in my career have been probably, you know, similar, like 80% because of a single person and then 20% right. because of all the other stuff, you know, that's right. just like becomes untenable when the person who's supposed to like have your back and do all the, is like the worst or, I you said, know, whatever. Like if you're watching really this, try not to move. Uh, you they don't cool. like to kind of like most employees do not like to move if they yeah. don't have to, but if they like their boss, most people would stick around for less pay. Yeah. If, if there's a good working relationship, so that starts at like the most fundamental level mm -hmm. is to fix that make sure that the first line manager is a good person that actually is going to work well with their employees. That starts at the baseline level. And then we start to kind of like do that human capital aspect. We talked about converting all your, your, your uh, HR initiatives into a dollar amount and, and, and tie it numbers and, and data behind that. And, and, and once you do that and you start to kind of take accountability at the leadership level and the first line managers, it's like an employee turnover. Start at converting the turnover problem percentages into a dollar amount. Once that dollar amount of turnover is converted, that is actually uh, pushed to the leaders and first line managers to create action plans uh, because they are the one yeah. that will fix this. Mm -hmm. Not employees, but them. So when that takes into account, you bring in a level of accountability for first line managers up to the CEO level to fix it. So that's accountability. And then you assess the action plans of leaders and first line managers to, if, if employee turnover was at 15%, what did their action plans do to reduce that turnover percentage? Was it, did it, they didn't do anything or did it drop down 5%? So, and then how much of that 5%, how much money did you save that? See, so everything is like tied to money and numbers and accountability at the leadership level. That's when you start to see action happens a lot faster because when you have employer you, you, or burnout, you're asking employees to fix their workplace. They can't do that. Only the first line managers and leaders can fix the workplace problem. They can't do that. So that's why, you know, once you do a stepwise progression of having solutions, to go to a systematic process, how to fix turnover, then it will happen. Uh, but it, it really, it starts at the leadership level and first line managers to take the onus to correct the problem and not like look at employees as a problem. Right. Oh uh, yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's, that's a great way to, to put a, a you know, a nice, period on it is, you know, don't look at employees as the problem, which I think happens a lot of the time. We talk about burnout and there's a Gallup survey. There's, there was a paper that was written by uh, someone I know pretty uh, well also was that they quoted it. Mm -hmm. uh, burnout, employee burnout is not an employee problem. It's a workplace problem. Yeah. So it's also an employer problem, employer, not employee, but an employer problem. And it's a leadership problem. Once the ownership is directed back towards employers and leaderships to fix the problem, things are going to get done. But in the meantime, you and I are going to still have this conversation about chronic burnout, chronic burnout, chronic burnout, right. because 
the conversation and ownership of the problem has been shifted. Mm -hmm. Once I, I feel very confident that we shift the direction of the error where the ownership of the problem is, it will be fixed fairly rapidly. Yeah. But right now we're still going on the same model. What do we need to do with employees to fix it? What do we need to do with employees? But it's never to look back at the direction of first line managers and leaders as mm -hmm. this is your problem. You need to fix this. And that's yeah. going to happen once we do that. We flip that arrow where who owns this problem. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a game changer. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to thank you for laying that all out. That was fascinating. You listen, you got one patient over here that wants to be, you know, an advocate for this type of change, understanding the doctors, as you said, need that safety zone. Um, and hopefully through this and we can get the word out more because, you know, uh, it's super important that the patients that us, we all take accountability for what's going on in total in the healthcare system and more knowledge we have, the more actions that we can take from, uh, you know, local, uh, countrywide legislative, et cetera, level to, uh, to man, to demand better for all of us who are, I think, involved in the healthcare system, either as patients or on, you know, service doctor, nurse administrator side of things. So, yeah, just, I really appreciate it. Where can, um, where can people go to find out more about you, your work, uh, your consultancies, you know, what are the, where can I point people? I'll send a, I'll link that for you and you can post that, uh, on your site. Um, um, but I appreciate your time today. Like right. I said, you know, we, we talked about a lot of the issues today and really chronic burnout or any mental wellness situation that's going in healthcare today, whether it be nurses or doctors, it really is a, not just a doctor or a nurse problem. It's actually a society problem because ultimately, like I said before, we're all patients in the end. And if you were a patient, you would want to make sure that the person that's taking care of you, like I said, is bringing their best version of work. So is we need to be more advocates and we need more advocates to help doctors and nurses in this area. So I appreciate your time. I'll send you the link. Uh, Great. To where uh, my work can be found, especially with the healthcare consultancy firms that I work with. So I appreciate your time and really yep. enjoy the conversation. I appreciate you giving me the space here to kind of like spread my message about how we can affect the future of healthcare and how to improve the system. Thank yeah. you. No, absolutely. Again, yeah. Great to talk to you again and to see you. Hope we can do it again sometime. I will put it out into the social universe and I'm sure that, you know, at least three to a million people will see this and it'll, we can start the change. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Take care and thank you again. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.